Welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're going to art class. Our guest, Jason Rakulik, has been involved in many of your favourite horror picture books. As the publisher of Quirk Books, he was behind Grady Hendrix's Horror Store and Ransom Riggs' Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, amongst many others. Now, he's bringing out his own miscreation of word and image, Hidden Pictures. It's the novel that broke through my temporary reading slump. A breezy, bouncing story about imagination, suburban murder, and creepy, creepy artwork. Jason and I talk about all kinds of things, from the rise of 1% horror to the relationship between image and text, and how to adapt such a book for audio. We get into the fairy tale details that I missed. And we ask why kids' imaginary friends are just so damn freaky. Now, I also offer my unsolicited opinions on millennial parenting, which will no doubt endear me to many listeners who actually have kids. (laughs) Apologies in advance on that one. But come with me to a perfect kitchen, in a perfect house, in a perfect street, where the perfect child has covered the refrigerator in Little Paper Nightmares. Let's talk scared. Well, hi, Jason. A massive welcome to Talking Scared. How are things for you currently? Uh, I'm well, Neil. Thanks for having me here. No, absolutely great. Well, it's particularly great to have you here, actually, because your, your new book, Hidden Pictures... It dragged me out of a reading slump. This this sounds like really first world problems here. You know, like I've got a, a <laughs> reading slump. I mean, but basically I have to read at least a book a week. And under, under that pressure, sometimes, just sometimes, the joy slips away. Um, and Hidden Pictures completely captured me. It was like reading for pleasure and pleasure alone. So this interview is, is frankly just a bonus. Uh, so thank you for that. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. That's great. I'm glad you enjoyed the book. No, very much. Secondly, the book also offers us something a little different because this isn't your, how would I say, it's not your typical book. You do interesting things with the form and the nature of the ghost story. Now, I'm kind of eschewing my normal waffle at the start of this chat because I've got a lot of stuff I want to ask you. So let's jump straight in. Can you start us off with an introduction to hidden pictures what what do we need to know sure well the story um i feel like it's a spin on a classic story uh it, it's straight out of you know uh turn of the screw by henry james you know there's this young woman she arrives in a new place where she doesn't know anyone to take a job as a nanny to this uh five-year-old boy teddy and she soon discovers that uh, or she soon suspects at least that something you know, strange is happening in this house, possibly supernatural. And uh, she learns that, you know, long ago there was a murder on the property. And she sets out to investigate. The most unique thing about the book is that it's illustrated. Um, Teddy, the five-year-old boy, he loves to draw pictures. And we see his pictures throughout the novel, um, more than like 50 of them. And at first, they're typical Kid stuff, things that parents might put on a refrigerator, like rabbits and uh, trees and birds. But then 
you know, one day the babysitter Mallory, she sees him drawing a picture of a man uh, dragging a woman's body through a forest, you know, <laughs> and uh, the pictures become increasingly sinister and violent and strange and you know she can't help but wonder like what, what the heck is going on with this kid where are these pictures coming from and i guess that's i don't know that takes you maybe like 50 pages into the book so i don't know if i should go much further but uh things get more complicated from there yeah that is enough setup everything else is is reveal but i mean i will say that like i guess that with 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 the pictures you know they're not just decorative like they they are actually are clues to the book's central mystery so what happens is as Mallory discovers them in the story, you're encountering them right along with her. And what I tried to do with the book was to invite you, the reader, to try to figure it out with Mallory and sort of play play detective with her. Very much. And I'm glad you said that because that's going to form a big part of this interview, this stuff with, with this relationship between image and text. Because um, it fascinates me. It, it genuinely fascinates me because it's something I haven't seen done in quite this way before. But we'll get to that. Let's do some context stuff first. Um, I haven't started a conversation in this way for a while, but but permit me the lazy question. What was the spark behind the idea for Hidden Pictures? Uh, well, I'll give you a long answer to, you, to your question, um, because the spark came from a couple different places. Um, I've always been a horror fan, obviously. Uh, I mean, I, I, I've always been you know, reading the genre and, um, and for the last 20 years, I was working as the publisher for an indie press called Quirk Books. And, you know, when the company started, it was just four of us in a room and we didn't really have anything to publish. And it was very hard to get writers to give us their manuscripts because we didn't really have any track record. So, you know, if you'd written a good book, why in the world would you trust it to these uh, four people in the room? And so, one of the things we started doing just to, you know, pay the bills, one of the things I realized I could do was I could sort of play with the forms of books. You know, maybe I couldn't get amazing writers or amazing manuscripts, but I could I could get an amazing designer, you know, because <laughs> there are a lot of really talented graphic designers. And I could sort of think outside the box about what a book could do. And I could start playing with the form of books. And one of the first big hits I had in that role was... You know, it was a book I conceived, which was uh, called Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. And that the idea was, you know, to take this public domain text and infuse it with some new element, you know. <laughs> um, so I didn't even need a writer to write the whole book. All I really needed to do was hire someone to write like 10,000 words and add it to a book um, that already existed on Project Gutenberg. And the form of that book was very much front of mind as I was working on it. I wanted to look like a classic 19th century novel. So I wanted to package it the way... Um, Jane Eyre was packaged and Jane Austen was packaged. Um, so when that book released, you know, we, we were looking to things like Penguin Classics uh, and such. Um, another one I worked on in that vein was Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, which is like a young adult fantasy novel. That came to me as an art book. The author had collected these found photos of peculiar looking kids, um, really old black and white photos. and the original, his original intention for the book was just to publish it as an art book. And as we talked about it, like over a year, I was just craving a narrative to these stories because the stories, I'm sorry, I was craving a narrative to the photos because the photos were so evocative. Mm -hmm. um, I just felt like 
I don't. I want to know what's happening in these photos. I want to know who these kids are, and I want you to tell their story. And that became a novel. And so I was working on books like that. Another one uh, was Horror Store by Grady Hendrix, horror novel set in a haunted IKEA. We packaged it to look like an IKEA catalog. We used like blue and white signature IKEA colors, Futura IKEA font. Um, so all this stuff has always been like an interest of mine. I, I think it's really fun. I think it makes the reading experience more immersive. I love it when the book feels like an artifact from the world of the book. Um, and so when I left that job and went out on my own uh, with the goal of just writing full time, well, one thing I, I've, I, you know, I've always had the interest in illustrated novels, but I also f- suddenly found myself feeling really lonely. I was, I was like very, very isolated. I wasn't collaborating with anyone anymore because I was just in my house trying to write. So I thought to myself, God, I really need to, I really need to do some kind of illustrated novel just so I have someone to talk to every day. So I set out just trying to think of something, and I knew that I wanted to work with uh, two people, Will Staley and Doogie Horner, the guys who illustrated my book, because they're just really smart, creative guys, really funny, and I knew I would love working with them on anything. So, so that was the sort of groundwork for all of this. It was like, I want to do something uh, like those books I just told you about. Um, I'm going to write it myself. They're going to do the pictures, and now I seem to figure out what it is. There's a lot to unpack there because you've mentioned loads of famous books from the noughties horror kind of canon. Um, yeah, Horror Store, obviously, Grady Hendrix is, you know, of this parish. He's been on the show. Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, I have a really evocative memory of that book because that came out when I was in the middle of a, a thesis all about horror and intertextuality. Mm-hmm. So I was just like, oh, my God, they've written a book that's basically blowing my thesis out of the water. It's, you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> yeah. So I had, I had mixed feelings, mixed emotions towards that book when it came out. But you clearly love a mashup. Your first novel, The Invisible Fortress, is this whole concoction of 80s pop culture and video games and coming-of-age rom-com and, um, and, and all that kind of thing. And, and then, obviously, it went on with other things like Android and sense and sensibility and sea monsters and, and all that sort of stuff what was it just you in a room thinking up puns oh yeah yeah when that when that happened um well it wasn't just me in a room thinking up like you know i mean initially for for pride and prejudice and zombies when that started i had youtube had just taken off and i would see people doing things where they take you know the office and they set it in outer space and they, they mm-hmm. cut the clips with like Star Trek. And I was so jealous. And so I made a list of all the public domain books that I had to read in high school. And then uh, next to it, I had a second column, like a column B with like, you know, robots, <laughs> zombies, pirates, monkeys. And I was just drawing lines, connecting, connecting pairs. And when I drew the line between Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, I was like, oh, my God, that's freaking perfect. That's the title. Yeah, it just sounds um, right. And then, uh, and then, then in the wake of that, everybody started doing it. This is that was the thing. I thought we, I was like, oh, we could do these forever. You know, we could do Android Karenina and on and on and on. But what I what I did not anticipate was that everyone else in publishing could do them too. And so yeah. all these other publishers, you know, started commissioning Little Women and Werewolves and and all these others. So it, the run only lasted maybe a year and a half, and then we had to stop because there were so many um, so many competitors. I was like, all right. Time for something else. We got to move on. Well, 
in a way, I'm glad you have because I, I like hidden pictures a lot more than those books. Yeah. You mentioned the name of the people who did the, the guys who did the drawings. What what are they called? Will Staley and Dookie Horner. Because I feel they should get some kudos as well for this book because the, the drawings are are incredible. What what was that process like? Did you write the story first and then present it, or did you have to go back and forth? How, how did you get to this this mingling of, of text and image? Right. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it was a little bit of both. Like I wrote a big chunk of the book and I I wanted them to have as much like input and sort of freedom as possible. So there is a sort of, um, there's a couple of different kinds of illustrations in the book. And there's a sequence of images that when put together in the right order, they, they sort of tell a story. And I, mm-hmm. I gave Will, who did that sequence, I, I tried to give him as much freedom as possible. I sort of told him I wanted it to how I wanted it to feel, and I sort of explained that you know these pictures were going to appear out of order, so they had to appear sort of strange and cryptic and surreal. Um, I used the comparison, the analogy of the videotape in the ring, you know, where yeah. like the images in that sequence they don't quite all make sense when you see them, but once you know the story everything makes perfect sense. And so, you know, that was definitely an influence. Um, but then, you know, what happened was like, these guys would send me illustrations and they would have ideas of their own. And then I would have to go rewrite passages be- to just to incorporate what, what they had done. Um, the ending of the book, the last illustration in the book, I had no idea where we we're going to end up with until I saw one of the first illustrations in the book. And I was like, Oh, it would be really cool if there was kind of like this visual symmetry um, yeah, of course. between the beginning illustration and the end. And that's how I ended up with the ending that I have. Um, so definitely a lot of collaboration change along the way. Well, I mean, they're incredible. And as much as they get more sophisticated, because they do, they, they go from being kind of like childish scrolls to being these, you know, real skilled sketches. As they get more sophisticated, they show more horrific things, but they get less scary. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, like the, 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 there is one like really crystal clear sketch of a woman being strangled, which is horrific. Yeah, but it's not as spooky as these childish line drawings with smiley faces and a ghost yeah. in the background. Do you agree? What, what is it? Do you think about childish drawings that make them so effectively spooky? Yeah, I, I they do have this special kind of magic. I love looking at them. Um, you know, anytime I see a movie, and I know you've seen the same movies I'm talking about, where like you know, you know, Insidious or mm-hmm. uh, any of those, where like the kid draws weird art. You know, those movies never linger on the art long enough for me. I always grab my remote and like pause <laughs> the movie so I can sort of look at it because um, you know some production designer is having a field day with with this art. I, I mean, all kids' illustrations are fascinating because you can sort of see their minds at work. You know, especially I think parents know this more than anything. You know, like if you if, if your kid's drawing, you're trying to psychoanalyze them by looking at their mm-hmm. pictures. And there's just something really creepy about seeing a kid present something that they should have no knowledge of. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's um, a good point. So I think that's why that 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 strangling image is so much creepier than the one that's done in a more adult style because well you know of course adults you know <laughs> would know what this is but uh, but a five-year-old should have no idea i have a really vivid memory of being a kid i was drawing in we call it reception you guys would call it kindergarten and um 
I think I'd just drawn loads and loads of guns on a piece of paper. Nothing violent, just <laughs> guns. And yeah. I, I really remember my mum sitting me down because my teacher had said something and she was kind of asking me why I'd drawn it. And I had no memory. I'd probably seen a cartoon where there's some guns. But I, I think back now and think, God, my mum must have been a little bit disturbed. She must have thought she had the next kind of school shooter on her hands, you know? Yeah. It's that, it's that window, that unfiltered window into what the kid is thinking about. Right. Do you do you have kids actually? Do you have children? I do. I do. Um, I have uh, my son is seventeen and my daughter is fifteen. And you know she was uh, she was like Teddy. She drew, still draws like crazy. Uh, there's papers all over the house. So um, did either of them ever have imaginary friends? No. Um, you know now that you mention it, neither of them had an imaginary friend. Uh, so my brother had one when I was growing up. He had a friend named Gene. <laughs> right. So, and was there anything creepy about that? Not really. I mean, apart from like all of it. You know? yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> In this book, Teddy, the little boy, has an imaginary friend, Anya. And there is just something universally creepy about kids and their imaginations. Yeah. And, and even though it's a kind of horror fundamental, I don't think we've ever actually talked about the whole imaginary friend phenomenon before. It, it it is just the creepiest thing. Like when these kids talk about imaginary friends, or they say like, you know, you know, you read these things, don't you, on on Reddit or creepy things my kids said this year. And yeah. It's always things like the the lady in my cupboard says you're going to die this week or stuff like right. that. A little bit of me always thinks, what if kids do just see things that we don't see? Because I don't the the, the entire framework for the things they say sometimes, like you just said, you know when a kid draws something that they shouldn't have any experience of or should have no knowledge of, that's what's creepy. And you hear these right. kids say things sometimes. Like I've got friends who kids have done it. And it, it, I just think, like, what have they got access to that is, is creating these strange thought processes? It's terrifying. Yeah. I wonder whether you were channeling the trauma of your own early fatherhood. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a very mysterious thing. Uh, the, the insights into the child's mind, the, the, it's, it's pretty strange stuff. So, I don't want to dwell too long on the whole picture thing, but it, it, the thing that is most fascinating about it is the way that the relationship between sort of text and image is physically laid out. So for, for listeners who haven't seen a copy of this book yet, basically you've got a conventional prose book that is just interrupted seemingly kind of at, at random there's no real pattern to it with these facsimiles of, of, of a sketch pad or later other materials and the way you do it is really clever because each of teddy's drawings is either introduced by the prose or or the drawing rudely interrupts the prose and it, it basically means that sometimes these images work like jump scares <laughs> right um, and there's one in particular that comes to mind early on in the book when mallory is looking through a selection of drawings that teddy has done and like the first four are just wholesome pictures of him and her having a nice time and it, like swimming and having a picnic and it literally looks like every drone you've ever seen on a parent's fridge and then you turn the page and, and it's important that you have, you have to turn the page to see it because that's where the jump scare thing comes from. You right. turn the page right. to the last image, and it's a picture of Teddy smiling, holding the hands of this hideous ghost. Yeah. And I, I wondered, 
that can't be coincidence. Surely, did you plan it so that you were literally yeah, turning absolutely. the page to kind of repel, you know, be repelled by this image? No, that's a trick I learned from, I worked on a couple graphic novels and that's like a common comic book thing, right? Where like, if you're going to have some kind of surprise, you have it on that left side of the page. And so that sequence that you're talking about, I think there were originally eight images in it. And I was like, oh, wait, this is one too many because now the the jump scare is going to be on the right. Mm-hmm. And I so I have to cut one to make sure it's on the left. Um or you know what we call like the the verso page like in publishing you call it like verso is the left and recto is the right, and so that's that you're exact that is exactly what we did. I was like I was like yeah this should be a surprise so we have to hide it on the left page so you see it at the last possible moment and then on the right across from that image you're right back in the story, mm-hmm. um, and the characters are reacting to seeing that image. So yeah that was something that came up throughout the book where I was like I was trying to um, be careful about where we placed images and then another thing i sort of deliberated about was like how much do i want mallory the narrator to describe the image it's probably better if she doesn't describe them at all like let's just Mm -hmm. you know or as little as possible let the reader just see it and draw their own conclusions we don't need mallory to verbally articulate what we can all see for ourselves however uh my publisher uh in the u.s here flatiron books when it came time to do the audiobook, they called say, me up yeah. and they were like, yeah. hey, you know. So actually, we, we, what I ended up doing for the audiobook was I went in and I, I just undid that impulse I just said to you. Like I, was, I was like, okay, we will have Mallory in the audiobook. She's going to have to describe some of these images. Um, and then I think if you get the audiobook, they also give you like a PDF that you can download with the audio file and you can, you can go look at them. But the text for the audiobook is slightly it's about like 1500 words longer because she does sort of communicate the essentials. I, I own a Kindle, but I'm a, I'm a reluctant Kindle user. I only have one because otherwise I need to buy a bigger house. Um, I love when a book comes out that kind of defies technology. Right, <laughs> I, right. I, I love when a book is released that kind of reasserts the primacy of, of, of the book as, as object. And because yeah. I always think like, in, in hundreds of years, we've never actually beat this technology. Anything we come up with, you know what I mean? It, it, it doesn't ever actually better the book. Um, and every now and again, you get something like Hidden Pictures or Danielewski's House of Leaves or Horror Store or things like that that just reassert the dominance of, of the, uh, the book as object. And I, I'm a massive fan of that. Well, me too. I mean, I love, I love print books. I, I don't really read too many eBooks, but I understand the appeal of audio. Like if you're the kind of person who has to be in the car two hours a day, cause your job requires you to go somewhere. Boy, I think it's kind of nice to be able to like listen to a book while you're driving instead of having to listen to, you know, some junky radio station or something. Yeah. You know. Oh yeah, I'm not one of these people. You get, you get these oddballs online. The perennial conversation is is an audio book reading. Well, well, yes, of course it is. You're consuming a book. I don't understand the question. I just can't do audio books. I, yeah. I don't know why my attention just slides off them uh, in a way that it doesn't with podcasts, for example. But the minute it's a story, it just I, I can't oh, do it. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's not the audio books are are fine and should be celebrated. Um, actually, whilst we're talking about the kind of technicalities of publishing and stuff, tell me, as someone who's been on both sides of the publishing aisle, so to speak, is a book like this a harder sell? Because presumably it's an unusual print run and, and costs more, and 
Did you have to kind of go to bat with Flatiron to get it published? Or No, I mean, you know, it's actually not more expensive to publish. Um, that, was a, that was a consideration I took into this early on. Like at one point I thought, boy, this is a kid drawing pictures. We've got to have them in color you know, because kids use mm-hmm. color, right? Kids, you work with like crayons. And, but I realized, I was like, boy, then you're trying to sell, uh, you know, what they call like a four color novel to a publisher, which is, which is more expensive to print. So I made a decision early on that Teddy's medium was going to be pencil and paper. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And all the art was going to be black and white. Um, and that made it, you know, as, so, so there was really no concerns from them at all. They're like, well, this, this does not cost us any more than a regular book. And we have the bonus of all these illustrations, which maybe we can use, um, you know, in this very visual online, uh, marketing environment of the internet, you know, like, you know, this is a book you can promote on Instagram because you have art. You know, mm-hmm. so I think they found. And that I, cool. I have been. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. Thank you. <laughs> this episode is supported by Novelic, the book app for people who want their suggestions from fellow readers, not an algorithm. Novelic is the perfect way to curate your TBR list with real recommendations from fellow-minded readers, broken down into genre, including yeah, horror, and all adjacent delights. You can download Novelic for free on iOS or Android devices and start browsing right away or join a book club for more in-depth chat on your favourite topic. The Talking Scared book club is up and running for Patreon members. Try Novelic for a nicer way to find your next read. Let's move on from the kids to the adults in the story. Am I alone in finding the entire setup? of the Maxwell's home inherently unsettling. <laughs> Am I supposed to find it that way? I, yeah, I mean, you know, I think if you've read enough of these kinds of books, you know that, like, something is not right. At the minimum, this marriage maybe is troubled, you know? Um, so I don't think you're alone. But did you set out to make it a sort of unsettling place to be because i was reminded of that that the two things actually all the way through i kept thinking what's it remind me of and the two things that kept coming to mind are that famous shot in twin peaks with the worms seething under Mm. the ground Mm -hmm. the idea that all all is not right in the land of the perfect picket fences right and also the setup of get out because even though this obviously isn't about racial issues although there are Tiny elements of that. It's it's not about that in the same way. There there is that same sense of white picket fence suburbia with these little details that start to snowball and accrete into this general sense of oddness and strangeness and the uncanny. Right. And I, I wondered, do you think there's something about the American suburbia that that we we keep returning to as a site of unease? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, you know, part of me, I, I live in the city. So uh, when I go out to the suburbs to visit friends, I'm like, boy, it's beautiful out here. I love it. You know, and so I, I'm like, you probably don't even lock your doors at night. Um, but, uh, but, you know, bad things happen everywhere. And 
I think with this book, you, you know, I definitely wanted to set up, um, there's no racial tension, but there's definitely a class tension, you know, like mm-hmm. Mallory feels like a fish out of water. Uh, she comes from a very blue, pal- blue collar background in South Philly. Um, she's had a troubled history. She doesn't really have any money and she has not, uh, she's made some mistakes. She's lost her, lost a chance to go to uh, university. So she shows up in this town where everyone has gone to, everyone's college educated, you know, people are very, very affluent. They have a lot more money than she does. And so she's uncomfortable and out of her element, but also like thrilled, (laughs) you know, Um, uh, she doesn't see it as a bad thing. She's like, wow, this is like the most amazing thing that happened to me. I can't believe how nice uh, the little cottage where I get to stay is. But but I was trying to create a sense of unease in the reader. You know, I wanted the reader to like to be watching all this and say, you know, okay, but just be careful, right? Like, pay attention. You didn't notice what just happened behind you, right? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. um, and I think you know something that probably was on my mind when I wrote this book. I had I had seen the movie Parasite uh, is another one, you know, that I'd lump in with the with the two you just mentioned. Yes. You know, yeah, good um, point. about how you know you've got the the very, very affluent family and then the help, <laughs> you know, and, you know, Mallory, uh, the narrator doesn't have a lot of authority in that household. So when she comes to the parents and she's like, Hey, I, I'm concerned about these drawings. And, you know, they, they, when they counter back and they like, look, you know, uh, our child has a beautiful mind. Don't, don't, don't hinder his creativity. You know, you don't know what you're talking about. You're just the babysitter. It's hard for her to argue with that. You know, I think some of that is just character work. You're trying to make, or I was trying to make her, and that's the tradition for this kind of story. You know, the, 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 the nanny, the babysitter is always like the most vulnerable person. I don't know if I've ever said this out loud on the show before, but I once spent a year working as a nanny. <laughs> really? Yeah, in, in Switzerland, okay. of all places. I lived in Geneva and I worked for a German family who were there for a, a year's contract. And they, I was living over there temporarily and they needed an English speaking nanny because they wanted the two year old son to learn English. Okay. Oh, so you had a two year old. Wow. That's young. Yeah. Well, two year old and a five year old some days of the week. But I, I had no experience of any kind of childcare. Like literally mm-hmm. I had to bring my mum the first day and be like, how do I change a nappy? You know, I had no idea. Christ knows why they gave me the, the chance to look after their child. I don't know what was in hindsight. It seems mad, and I had I had the confidence of youth. Whereas if I if it was now, I'd be terrified, you know. But you yeah. are in that very very vulnerable position because you've got this kid who will test you and try you and push you, but but you you don't have the authority a parent does, and right. all the way through, I felt that precipitous feeling that Mallory has where she doesn't quite know where she sits right. um, in the in this world, which is exacerbated by the wealth disparity and the power disparity on top of all that as well. Um, and I wonder whether you've heard of this new, you know, you know, everyone is always subdividing horror into ever smaller subdivisions. There's mm-hmm. this, this phrase I've heard recently called 1% horror. Have you heard this term? No, no. It sounds fun though. <laughs> what is it? It seems to come again, going back to things like Get Out or, um, you know, this idea about horror that's predicated on social and economic inequality. Mm -hmm. So I suppose, would you consider hidden pictures to be part of that? Well, I mean, it's definitely a theme in the book. 
you know, but I, I don't know that it's like the, the primary focus of the book. It's just sort of the setting of the book. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the Maxwell family, they have some, they have some progressive ideas about, about childcare that I don't necessarily agree with. And I'm kind of making fun of them a little bit, but I have a lot of friends <laughs> who think the same way, you know, so I'm not, I'm not making fun of them too much. You know, <laughs> are you referring to the list, to the list of rules? Oh yeah. The list of rules is just a, just a, just a couple a couple things throughout the book about the way they, they you know, so, I mean, here's my experience. What I found is that when I had little kids, I'd never had children before and I was freaking out about everything and I was probably like insufferable. And now that I'm like, now that my kids are teenagers, when I see parents with little kids, I find them insufferable. You know? <laughs> like that's a last, if I, if they sit down next to me in a restaurant or a cafe, I'm like, Oh my God. You know? Um, yeah. And so I was sort of yeah. having fun with them, but uh, but believe me, I, I I did all the same stuff myself, so I I'm not making fun of them too much. Well, I've had conversations on this show about the lived experience of people of color. I've had conversations on this show about the lived experience of transgender people, um, and I've kind of got through without exposing myself as an idiot. But I feel like nothing will run me closer to the bone than having an opinion on parenthood without having a child of my own. But here goes anyway, because fuck it. I am so glad you said that you were kind of taking, that you were taking the mick, as we would say, or, or mocking um, the Maxwells, because these house rules, like no drugs, no drinking, no smoking, no screens, no red meat, um, <laughs> all that sort of stuff. I was just like, I know so many people like that. yeah, And it's this micro controlled parenting mm-hmm. that I just think it just looks exhausting. <laughs> and and without saying like one of these guys who's like, when I was a kid, it was all fine. I literally was just kind of fed any old thing. You know what I mean? And like <laughs> yeah. let out of the house like a feral dog to go and play for 10 hours a day. And then I come back, I, I watched like Robocop when I was six. And I won't <laughs> say I've turned out okay, but you know, I'm not dead. <laughs> and, and I, I just, and I just think, yeah, you, you've kind of skewered that millennial over-anxious parenting. But yeah, I, I will just caveat by saying once again, I don't have kids. I've got a year of nannying experience and please don't punch me in the face, listeners. <laughs> the one thing that did make me kind of raise a an amused eyebrow, though, is the last rule on the list is no religion or superstition teach science. Right. And I wondered what we were supposed to deduce about the Maxwells from that. Because it dawned on me that I'm an atheist, so that makes me like them. But I wondered to other people, is that more more mockery or is, is that a different kind of indicator? Well, you know, I... Oh boy, that's a tough question to answer. I mean, because I, I'm, I don't want to give things away about the book. But if you know certain things about the book, you know why that rule is there, right? Mm-hmm. You know why they put it there. Um, you know, I'm not an atheist. I, I, I don't know what I believe, but there's a certain kind of atheist who really bothers me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> and, you know, I'm like, and, and you know, particularly, you know, with, with Mallory, you know, she's someone who is in uh, Narcotics Anonymous. And, you know, so... Uh, a belief in a higher power is, is a big part of that program. You know, it, it's it's something that it's 
that is really important to people like that. So I'm like, let them have it. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Just, just, just let yeah. them have it. It's, it's got nothing to do with you. She's not going to try to convert uh, your kid to Christianity. She's not going to, you know, take your child to mass, you know, but just let her have her thing. Let her wear, let her wear a cross. If she wants to wear a cross, don't make her tuck it in her shirt. You know, she's allowed to do that, you know? And, and I do, you know, once you get to the end of that book, knowing once you know the complete story of this book, like there's a reason that rule is there. There's a reason they don't want to talk about religion. Uh Um, Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about the end of the book without giving too much away. We'll try and thread the needle. But before we get to that, just to stay a little while with this economic thing, because I thought the character of Adrian was interesting. This is the sort of Mallory's friend that she makes in the neighborhood. And he's part of a Latino family who seem to really complicate the social and economic hierarchy of Springbrook, this middle-class neighborhood, because we meet them as gardeners, the father and son. But then it turns out they own one of the grandest houses in the area. And I I thought, surely you are intentionally toying with our assumptions there. Absolutely. And you know what? That's life. I had a, when I was in high school, there was a boy who sat behind me who rarely came to high school. And when he did, he seemed like he was either very tired or intoxicated. And I think in the 11th grade, he dropped out, high school dropout. And that, that young man is now by far the wealthiest (laughs) person of anybody I went to high school with. Um, And he started a landscaping company, you know, um, mm-hmm. and, 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 and turned it into a landscaping empire. So, uh, I didn't mean to go off on the tangent, but, 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 but I'm sure he, in some ways he was the inspiration for that character because it looks, you know, one of the things about this book is everyone you meet is maybe not necessarily who they look like on the surface, the gardener, yeah. you know, just because he's cutting grass, like he works for a living. Yes. But like he may, he, that doesn't mean he doesn't live in a nice house, <laughs> you know? Um, Yeah. But that's where I thought the racial stuff was was great. Because I know we said at this, a while back that we, I compared to Get Out and said it's not got a racial subtext, but it has got a slight one. Because, as I say, the fact that they are sort of a, a Latino family and they mm-hmm. can pretty much outbuy the Maxwells and their house also feels lived and it feels um, kind of like old, rich, a bit more established, whereas the Maxwells right. are complete middle-class trash, really. Everything is brand new mm-hmm. and from mm-hmm. Pottery Barn. Um that's me using my American references, but I have no idea what Pottery Barn is. I saw it mentioned in Friends once and just said it there. <laughs> uh, but then there's also other revelations about people's ethnicity that kind of undercuts expectations. Oh, right. Um, yeah. yeah, and it did just feel like I dismissed that before, but it actually does play a bit of a part, again, in this thing about white suburbia not being as simple and straightforward a place as you think it is. But also with the economic horror. And here's a weird comparison that I don't think you'll have had said to you before. Mallory uh, reminded me of Jack Torrance from The Shining. Oh, wow. Okay. How so? Well, when you read The Shining and when you watch some of the Amateurville horror, even, you know, people say this economic horror thing is a new thing, this 1% horror. It's not. It goes all the way back. You know, economic threat's always been a concern for people. But Jack Torrance in particular is stuck in the position he's in with this this mad supernatural goings on because he needs the job. 
That's right. why he stays. You know, he needs right. the job. And yeah. it struck me that that Mallory is in the same position. She's oh, trapped absolutely. into this situation because she needs the job. She hasn't got she hasn't got a plan B. Right. I think that is true. Um, although I think by the middle of the book, she at this at that point she be, she's become so close to Teddy um, that she is committed to 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 to, to sticking it out. Um, but but you're absolutely right. She actually has nowhere else to go. And the com- the hmm, the commitment to Teddy. Well, th- hmm, right. This takes me into a question that I don't want you to take this the wrong way. I really don't. I've already told you how much I like the book. You know what I mean. So bear with me. Yeah, sure. Mallory's position is interesting because for much of the novel, there aren't really the typically dangerous big stakes that you would get in a supernatural horror novel. Like no one's life or sanity or soul is really a threat. And it largely comes down to the threat of her losing her job. And as you say, her, then her commitment to Teddy. But Teddy never seems to be in that much danger. And, and all of that struck me as a fairly unusual take for a horror story, having relatively low stakes. But it mm-hmm. also made the book quite refreshing. And it, it was almost a fun comfort read now that okay. that might piss you off and i don't want to kind of make it sound like damning with faint praise no it doesn't doesn't piss me off at all i mean i i don't know i i have trouble with like whatever rules of genres are like if, if you ask me mm-hmm. what this book is i don't know I, I have a very hard time answering that question i think it's a mystery i think it's a thriller it's kind of horror you, you know but not not as squarely in the horror genre as like a lot of the other books that you talk about on your show. Yeah, sure. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I made a decision at some point. I'm like, okay, well, at least one person needs to die in this book before it's over. <laughs> you know, like, 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 I, or, you know, before the climax, I wanted to have um, uh, one person die, but, uh, but it's certainly not the kind of book where, you know, every, every four chapters, you have some kind of like horrifically violent set piece where, you know, something, awful happens um because i think the the book is probably just too realistic for that you know um it's Mm -hmm. not realistic at all because it's a ghost story but like uh i'm not sure if i if i've explained that properly but uh no i know what you mean though because it is realistic i mean it's kind of like the minutiae of someone's babysitting job you know just so happens that the minutiae is inflected with the supernatural um and all the characters are quite realistic and grounded. and yeah. But I just thought it was fun to read a book that had, I don't like the phrase low states because that does sound like criticism and it, it's genuinely not, but a, a sense of levity about it and a sense of, 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 yeah, of fun. It's kind of like sunlit horror, if you know what I mean, without getting yeah. too Bodenian, whether it's horror or not. It's this sunlit thing that, that, that feels like perfectly tooled to be read on a beach rather than on a stormy night if if that gets across what i mean no absolutely and that's that's definitely the vibe that i wanted i mean i wanted this book to it's summertime she's in a beautiful suburb she's walking around at night at like 7 30 8 o'clock when like it's kind of cool and the sun's going down and the lawn sprinklers are on and it's just you know it's just a pleasant place to be it's nice um it's summer <laughs> You know, and that's that's the feel I wanted of the book. Um, yeah, and it never feels like Mallory is not having fun. 
Right. No, she's thrilled to be there. She's thrilled to be there. But there's definitely something wrong um, with the house. I mean, for her, it's a. It's, we haven't talked about all the fairy tale analogies. I don't know if they. I don't know if they landed for you or not. But I tried to pack this book because it's a book about a child. I tried to pack the book with fairy tale references. Um, I tried to name check every single one I could think of, and um, I wanted the community. I wanted her to feel like, oh, I, I'm living in a fairy tale, you know. Yeah, because it's a Cinderella story, isn't it? I mean, she got it's a rags to riches Cinderella story. It just so happens that she's looking after a kid. That's right. But yeah, I suppose go on. Talk about explain the fairy tale bit a bit, a bit more because that, that I haven't picked up on that perhaps as much as I should have. Well, I mean, you know, so um, let's think. You know, there's a picture of her like in front of her cottage, and I, I was thinking of you know when she's feeding the animals breakfast every morning. You know, and I was thinking of like <laughs> Snow White. There's the enchanted forest that she and Teddy play in. Um, there's a tree they climb that they call like the giant beanstalk tree. Um, the landscaper who lives in like the flower castle, like the big yeah. mansion, he's the lawn king and Adrian is like the prince. And there's even a scene, I don't want to spoil it, that is meant to evoke Little Red Riding Hood. Mallory comes home and finds someone in her bed. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, so, that, is a dis- uh, that is an uncomfortable scene. <laughs> and because it was an illustrated book, again, I was thinking, oh, you know, maybe this book is going to look like a book of fairy tales. We didn't end up going in that direction. But I, I you know, I read all my brother's grim. I, I, you know, I got all those books out and started thinking about them. And nobody ever mentions it to me. So I, I don't know. Um, you know, one thing I knew at the end of this book, and I don't think this is too much of a spoiler, but I'm like, at the end of this book, Mallory and Teddy are running into those dark woods. <laughs> You know, like Hansel and Gretel, and it's all going to get worked out uh, in that forest. Um, well, yes, and and that brings me to a question I've got to ask, but I'm going to tread carefully. Okay, so I've mentioned these these low stakes. By the end, the stakes are raised dramatically, and it's a very twisty book. So I'm going to ask you this in a broad sense, and then I'll just say, listeners, think of this as a question that will reward and inform reading when once you've read it um you may be expecting this already do you anticipate any pushback against some of the final reveals because without going to specifics it feels like you tread quite closely to what could be a contentious issue have you anticipated that uh i think i know what you're talking about i don't think it's it only because the word gets mentioned in the book, but it has nothing to do with the issue you're talking about. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I, I do know what you mean. I, I like, know what like, you mean. I, I just know that it's a it's a hot topic uh, right. that is open to anger on all sides. And I oh, just wondered I know. whether you'd you'd considered that, or your publisher considered that in in the final reveal. I believe me. I thought about it. There's there's. The, there's a word that gets used and I was like, boy, am I, I should pro- I probably shouldn't even put this word in my book because mm-hmm. it's such a hot button issue. It's kind of like having the word abortion in your book, you know, <laughs> like if you, you, just, you, you just mention the word abortion and, and people are going to get um, upset. And so I hope it's not because I really don't think the book has anything to do with it, but I think the character who utters that word, it is in keeping with their character to say what they say. <laughs> if that makes yes. sense. You know, as a sort of defense, as a sort of 
you know, terrible last ditch explanation for what's going on, mm-hmm. um, which Mallory does not buy at all. But just by virtue of mentioning it, I'm like, boy, I probably am going to like upset some people. But, you, you know, in my mind, uh, the book has nothing to do with that subject. <laughs> right. Well, that's a good enough answer for me. Just I, I felt like I had to ask because obviously it's when people read this, it will be something that will come up, you know. And I will add that, you know, the reveal that you're talking about is something that is actually very, very common mm. in real life with these kinds of cases. <laughs> trying to be as right. discreet as possible. But like, We're doing this well has happened here. before. I, You've I, heard stories where this happens. Yeah, I basically wish that we could talk about it more openly because it is a fascinating topic in and of yeah. itself. Um, sadly, we can't because that would deprive readers of a, a great read. So we'll leave it there. But once we do know know the whole picture, it's it's really clear that you've been leaving a trail of clues almost since the very first time that Mallory meets the Maxwells. And to close on a question of craft, how do you do that? Do you write the book first and then go back and create the trail? Or is it all there in the first draft? Well, I can tell you that I knew um, I knew what was happening in this book when I wrote it. I knew what the ending was. I knew what the, the reveal we just talked about. I knew all that stuff. So um, I would say that, you know, it, it's sort of both. Like I wrote it and then I went back and I rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it and tried to you know track the appearance of every last scrap of information so that if a reader was paying attention they could you know they wouldn't know too much too soon and and they could follow along and figure it out if they were you know being careful things mm-hmm. like that well I, I was being careful and i was paying attention and i was completely wrong about where this was going oh yeah um I, I had a whole different, I, I had a fully formed, f- fully fledged solution to what was happening that all made sense and it was completely wrong. You, oh, you, wow. you hoodwinked me. So, wow. and I, I read a lot of stuff so that, that it's not that easy to hoodwink me. So yeah, it was, it was done well. Whilst we're talking about other books, can I ask you to c- recommend one for my listeners, Jason, and tell us why? Uh, sure. The book I would recommend to your listeners, if they haven't read it, is um, a novel called A Kiss Before Dying by Ira Levin. Are you familiar with that book? I'm not. I'm familiar with Ira Levin, and I've yeah. heard A Kiss Before Dying, but I, for some reason I'm thinking, of, I'm thinking of As I Lay Dying by Fulton. Nope. No, yeah, I'm not, no, I'm not familiar. So, Do tell. Well, so Ira Levin, obviously, you know, master, uh, the author of Rosemary's Baby, Stepford Wives, uh, Death Trap, an amazing play. Kiss Before Dying was his first novel, and this will make you really depressed. He finished writing it on his 23rd birthday. Um, oh, I think God. it's like, yeah, I know, I know. And and, and a lot of people um, think it's his best book. And I might agree. I mean, Rosemary's Baby is probably my favorite book by him, but Kiss Before Dying is just incredible. It's a, It starts with this guy, He's a, he's a college student. He's dating a young woman. She doesn't realize he's a sociopath. And he, uh, he discovers she's pregnant and he realizes he's going to have to murder her um, because he's not going to marry her. And this is the 50s. Like, he kind of has to marry her. Um, and it, it, it just gets... I mean, that's like 
I'm telling you, like, that's like page one, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and there is a twist in the middle of this book that will just knock you off your feet. I mean, I'm talking like, it is like Jillian Flynn Gone Girl explosion in like the middle of the book that is um, just one of the best like gut punches I've ever read in a book. Um, full of surprises, still holds up pretty, pretty well. It's been made into a movie at least twice. Um, won the Edgar Award uh, for Best Novel the year it came out. And again, he was 23 the day he finished it. So uh, pretty much a genius, right? I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Um, and and just, just, a, just a fantastic book. It still, it still holds up really well. It's a lot of fun. Okay. Well, that will go straight on the list. So thank you for that. And lastly, as ever, what truly scares you, Jason? Oh, boy. I don't want to end on a downer, but uh, what scares me right now is um, social media. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, I'm not totally sure what things are like where you live, but here in the United States, it, it's just a really strange time right now. And, you know, people are finding it very hard to talk to other people. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, I am, I always... Well, I've always thought of myself as like a liberal, um, but you know, ten years ago, you could still talk to like Republicans and and Democrats and Republicans could could you know they could get together. And I feel like social media is just pushing people further and further apart. I was just reading now that the Republicans don't even want to have presidential debates anymore because we can't agree on facts. <laughs> like we can't even agree on like what's happening. Um, and I think social media is like fueling so so much of this uh so it really does scare the hell out of me uh i worry about what it's doing to my kids um who don't know any other way of living (laughs) you know like they've always been on social media and uh i worry about what it's doing to their brains uh you see these kids on phones all the time you see everybody on their phones and it's weird freaks me out so yeah me too um, we um i know that i've given into the, to, to the phone obsession I, i'm on it constantly like just pick it up like a habit you know like biting my nails it's a real vice and and i and i've got the the insight that that's not what life kind of should be so i can't imagine what it's like being 15 just got no idea and the social media stuff i mean my social media is a lovely place to be because it's literally just a show and i just follow nice people in horror mm-hmm. but you go on my other my my you go on my personal stuff that i don't use anymore and it's just an absolute trash fire the people screaming at each other and yeah I, I i don't really know where we go from here yeah it makes me really nervous um yeah and, and what, what makes me really nervous about it is you know yeah yeah old man shouting a cloud or whatever but like that's the thing when i try to talk to my kids about it they're like well what are you talking about dad everyone we know uses it it's fine we're all fine mm. <laughs> and i'm yeah. like well maybe this is just where we go from here but uh i, I hope not. I, I yeah i i i hope someday it'll something will happen that will punch the bubble but i i i don't know yeah that is a damn bit way to end just two people kind of <laughs> saying and going i don't know but uh <laughs> sorry but it but, yeah. does legitimately frighten me so yeah so yeah i know but I, yeah shakes head shrugs i don't know <laughs> and then that's that's how we'll end the conversation but but jason on a more positive note you, your book rescued me from a reading slump i loved it everyone will read it People will have opinions. People will say they got the twist. I won't believe them. Um, I, I hope it does really, really well. Oh, thanks, Neil.
and it's out from Flatiron Books on the 10th of May, which is today, if you're downloading this podcast and on the day of release. So go check it out. Jason, Rakula, thanks for talking scared. Thanks, Neil. Okay, so before we go any further, let me repeat the names Will Stale and Doogie Horner. They're the artists who work with Jason to make this book sing. And sing it does. The way the pictures tell their own side of this story, it's something I've rarely seen done before and, and never as well. And I guarantee someone will have a picture of Anya tattooed on their body before the month is out. But all that focus on the pictures shouldn't detract from the fact that Jason has written a banger of a story. And I'm glad he wasn't offended by me talking about it being light and the stakes being low. None of that means this isn't a gripping tale, because it really is. I was just turning the pages. I read it so fast. It's just nice to have a break from reading about souls being torn apart or worlds ending. This is a small, suburban, domestic horror story that's perfect for your summer holiday. Friend of the show, Dan Sewell, gave me this phrase recently, commercial prose, and I've been using it all over the place to describe the kind of easy-to-read, enjoyable, compulsive page-turner that we all want at this time of year. There is, after all, a season for reading House of Leaves, and it's not on a beach or a picnic blanket. Hidden Pictures is the perfect example of commercial horror fiction that will consume a few days of your life. Think Gone Girl with demonic Crayolas. There is that slight thing I brought up at the end of the conversation about possible issues to do with the conclusion and final revelations. I've gone away and thought about it, and I, I, I well, for one, I don't think that Jason was being provocative at all. Um, I think it's written very much in good faith. I'm just interested in what certain readers will make of that because it does seem to brush up against a topic in culture at the moment that is is ripe with debate and division and well all the things that we talked about at the end to do with social media but yeah let me know your take on that when you've read it because I'm really intrigued to hear the opinions of people who are far more qualified to speak on that topic than I am and in fact when it comes to the uh, the idea of authority and qualification to to speak to certain topics. You, you may actually have seen this week that my article on the 50 best horror novels of all time went live on Esquire. Yeah, it was kind of a thrill for little old me. Thanks one and all for your comments, most of them kind. But if you haven't seen it, you can find it pinned to the very top of my Twitter page or again in the show notes. It was a real labour of love. And I'm sure it's pissed off a lot of people. <laughs> Most of them, to be fair, seem to be white guys of a certain age, annoyed that I've dared to exclude H.P. Lovecraft and instead include women and writers of colour. I'm not so bothered by those opinions. <laughs> but I am entirely interested in everyone else's thoughts. So go have a look at the list and tell me what books I've missed, what's in the wrong place, what shouldn't be there at all. I may even do a special episode talking about it, maybe. Maybe. If you've read it, though, or when you have read it, drop me a line. Do say what you think. Same deets, as always. It's talkingscaredpod 
at gmail.com or talkscaredpod on Twitter and Instagram. And you can also support the show as ever through Patreon. For bonus content and insider knowledge, just visit patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod or again, follow the link in the show notes. I'm pretty sure you'll be glad that you did. But from a list of many good books to another, next week I'm back with Anne Helpsel and Just Like Mother, a paranoid gothic techno thriller that's like Rosemary's Baby meets Black Mirror. People will like it a lot, I think. Until then, tidy your room, be kind to your friends, both real and imaginary, and bear in mind that any best of list is just one person's opinion. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>